Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their story so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. In this debut episode, we chat with Asia Grant, class of 2017, the founder and creative director of Redo, a cosmetics company based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where she oversees growing the brand. Prior to founding Redo, she worked as a user experience designer and researcher for IBM and then Capco in New York, New York. She earned a BS in marketing with honors from Penn State's Smeal College of Business in 2017. She's happy to connect with scholars to discuss branding, marketing strategy, entrepreneurship, and design. Asia also served as the president of the Stoller Alumni Society from 2019 to 2021. In our conversation today, Asia shares great advice and insight on the Presidential Leadership Academy and making the most of the Honors College as a third-year admitted scholar, the importance of connecting with faculty and using your thesis post-graduation, transferring skills from a corporate role to a startup, including time management, advice when taking the plunge of going full-time on a side hustle, and getting involved as an alumni volunteer. Now, let's dive into our conversation with Asia Grant. Thank you for joining me today, Asia. Um, I'd love if we could just start out a little bit at what you currently are doing at Redo, if you can walk us through a little bit about your company and what exactly you know, you're working on there. Sure. My pleasure to be here. Um, it's funny because Redo was started with another scholar alum. So I was even contemplating, I was like, should I have him guest appear? And I was like, no, that'll be too complicated. But um, some context around Redo. I started a passion project with my best friend back in 2019. Um, I just uh, graduated. I was like two years out of school and he had just graduated and was taking a gap year in between his PhD program um, and graduation. And we were both kind of like, we're living these corporate lives. We're going to live these corporate lives. Maybe let's just start a side project together. So we have a reason to speak to each other every single week um, before we get way too busy. So we started Redo, which was very type A scholar of us. Um, and we wanted to create a skincare company since something that we had a shared love for while we were at school was skincare. And we wanted to focus specifically on scent because of the emotional ties um, to how people relate to scent, interact with scent, and how it's really based around nostalgia. So where we've just turned to this past July, I actually quit my full-time job um, last October um, to pursue Redo full-time because it was such an explosive year for us. So now that we're technically in our third year, a lot of the stuff that I do is the sales and marketing side, a lot of the creative direction, all of the partnerships, um, and just building out what the brand vision is overall. So it's been a lot of fun working on that full-time. Definitely exciting. And uh, for anybody listening, we recorded this in August of 2021. So helped you get the timeline right there. But I want to go back a little bit further, Asia. And was this something that was always something you wanted to do? Or as you talked about, was it something that's kind of crept up? What did you, what brought you to Penn State originally? Sure. So there's there's two questions there. The first one was, uh, was this always something I wanted to do? I think from a very young age, I knew that I wanted something that I could call my own. Um, when I was very, very little, I wanted my own hotel. I wanted my own art gallery. Um, there were all of these different little projects that I wanted to be able to just do and own because I love seeing the creative process from beginning to end. Um, and when I was at Penn State, I was when we were going to the career fairs and talking to um, talking to potential employers, everything felt very overly structured for me. Not that the jobs or internships were bad, but I always wanted to do 
more. Um, so I felt like entrepreneurship was something I was always interested in. I just didn't know how that would manifest, but I was always looking for friends um, to start little projects with and say like, oh, you know, we should try this out or we should go over here. We should talk to this person. Um, so I think it's it's always been something that I was eventually going to get to. Um, a corporate job was absolutely not for me. It's definitely purposeful and necessary. And I appreciate both of my corporate jobs to help me get to where I am now. But for the long term, it was not within my cards. Um, how did I get to Penn State? It was so I'm a Pennsylvania native. I grew up here um, in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Um, Penn State was, to be honest, a fallback school of mine. I thought I want I was thought I was going to go to Harvard or Stanford, got rejected from all of those schools, emotionally devastated, got into Penn State um, and realized I was like, okay, if I'm if I'm looking at school as a means of um, of an experience, what do I want to get out of this experience? I didn't really care for the party scene. I didn't really like care for the social side, uh, which now I realize, yes, you absolutely did. But I really wanted to see or like go to a university that cared about like who I was after I left, not just the four years while I was there. So Penn State became my top pick just because of the alumni network tied to the rigorous nature of the of the curriculum. Um, I wasn't a scholar when I first came in, but those were the two reasons I was like, there's an alumni network here that wants to support me after I leave. I know the only way that I will be successful in life is based on the people who I am connected with because at the end of the day, your network is your net worth. So that's why and how I ended up at Penn State. So when you were here, I know that one of the choices you made was to apply for and you were ultimately accepted into the Presidential Leadership Academy or the PLA. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience and for any maybe prospective or uh, current first year scholars who are listening to this, why they should consider applying for that and for maybe current PLA students, how they can make the most of their time in the PLA? Sure. The way I heard about PLA, I was actually nominated by my academic advisor. She said that it would be something that would be um, really suited for. Um, and funny enough, someone else actually applied whose name was also Asia. And through the application process, I think there was like something that went wrong and our applications got switched. So I technically did not get a first interview with PLA. Um which was crazy to me. <laughs> I was like, I also had another company that I started my freshman year. And I like wrote about that during my application. They said, we're sorry, like, we're not interested at this time. Um, and I met some other people in PLA. And they, they essentially like went to bat for me. And they're like, who like, why didn't Asia get in? Like, she should at least have an interview. So there's like this whole thing. Um, and this is kind of one of my life mantras, where it's like, the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. If, if there's something that you don't think is right, if you speak up, uh, it's, it's probably going to work in your favor. So I ended up getting an interview and then got into PLA and then realized that the people around me, um, most I was not a scholar at that point. I think about half of us weren't scholars and the other half were scholars. And I was just so impressed. I was like, this is the most diverse group of intellectuals I've ever met. And it, I kind of had a moment of dissonance because I was like, oh, I'm also here. So I guess I also fall into this category. Um, but I think my, my favorite part of PLA was just hearing how passionate people were about the work that they did that was so different from mine. I'm still very close with a lot of the individuals that I went to, um, or that was part of my PLA graduation class, as well as the one below me and the one above me and two years above me as well. But I think the best thing to get out of it is just connecting with people on not an academic level because it's it's just the way um and I think that's what brought PLA brought us together in PLA it's just the way that we think so many different ways uh that people are able to kind of get to the places where they are so I don't think we, I ever like had truly academic conversations with my PLA cohort we talk about like weird esoteric things that we all enjoy um, or that we personally enjoy. Um, I think one of the last conversations I had with someone um, from my PLA class was how they went on a trip through Chile and got like tricked into like doing this weird 
tour that they then had to sleep in a tent and then how that allowed them to reconnect with one of their like fifth cousins, like very strange lives that we all live. But I think that's what made it special. (laughs) Um, and then, you know, I want to go back a minute into our conversation since we took a little bit of a detour to talk about the PLA. Mm-hmm. You made a comment about the power of alumni, and that got me thinking about really networking. And um, mm-hmm. I know that's a key part of your origin story as a scholar. Um, mm-hmm. I know because we have a we go back a little bit. So I've heard the story. Yeah. But if you could just kind of maybe rehash it for me on how you came to you know, decide to apply and begin your journey in the Honors College? Sure, yes. And I will be 100% transparent to everyone here um, because I've been saying this more and more frequently just to give credit where credit is due. All of my success, um, yes, I work very hard and there's a lot of luck, but all of my success and all of the opportunities I've been fortunate enough to receive is because of my network and someone saying, hey, I think Asia would be good for this. So with that related to the Honors College, um, in high school, there was a girl who was, I was a freshman and she was a senior, and she went to Penn State um, and was in SMEAL similarly to me. And then when I came to Penn State as a freshman, she was a senior and she had gone through the process of um, entering the college, or yes, entering the college as a third year. And everyone's like, you're going to follow in Marquia's footsteps. And I was like, no, I'm not. But she essentially paved the way for me to be able to get into the honors college, kind of groomed me and coached me. Um, I was originally accepted into the finance major, uh, just because my GPA allowed for it. I thought I wanted to do finance. I thought I wanted to go to Goldman Sachs. Then I met with the honors advisor, for finance. And I remember one of my favorite classes, my freshman year was marketing 301. Um, After my first class with my professor, who was Dr. Coopland, I went to her class, I gave her my business card. And I was like, I love this class so much marketing makes so much sense to me. And we just kept in touch from that point on. And I went to her when I was considering uh, applying to Schreier. And she was like, you should absolutely do it. I'm part of the committee that chooses who is accepted through SMEAL and let's just work on your, on your thesis like proposal together because we will essentially most likely work on your thesis if you get into the honors college. So she was the second person to groom me to help me get into Schreier and then was ultimately my thesis advisor um, for when I actually went through the process of writing it. So I think that's a perfect tee up, Asia, if you can then dive into what that thesis was once you were you know, accepted into the college and delved into the more academic side of marketing. Sure. So I'll be completely transparent again. Um, I was very intimidated by the thesis because I didn't really understand what it was from the business side of writing a thesis, it looks very different than say the engineering side or the medical side, because it's more of a nebulous thing where you can explore whatever you want. That's how Dr. Coopland explained it to me. She's like, you can either find something new or you can do like an amalgamation of existing research to then kind of define it under a new concept, which is what I did. So mine was the typology of cuteness. I wanted to see the different and explore the different dimensions around the concept of what cute actually is from a physical and emotional attribute standpoint. And I looked at that through the lens of um, packaging design and packaging design specifically within the cosmetic industry in Korea. So it's very different than how Western beauty standards are, where it's very chic and luxury and bright and shiny. Think, you know, your Hermes, your Chanel's, your Goyard's um, versus how it's done in Eastern beauty cultures, which is very cute. They do collaborations with like Disney or even like these animated television series, but it's still marketed towards adults um, and and different ages. So I really wanted to get an understanding of why people emotionally invest and how the different categories of cute, whether it's like baby cute or like whimsical cheeky cute or like more aesthetically um, clean and chic cute. These are all different types of communicating without actually using any words, just using visual cues um, to elicit a certain response in 
in customers. So that's what my thesis was about. And I still use it to this day um, as it relates to my company because packaging design is something that affects a lot of people, which they don't realize. But a lot of people assign a lot of personal identity in the things that they purchase um, if they took the time to kind of just like look around and see all the things they buy and questions like, huh, why did I buy that? Like, what did it make me feel like when I when I saw it on the shelf? So it's it's a lot of fun. Could you give maybe a little bit more uh, of an in-depth explanation on, on maybe some kind of standard item that maybe students uh, who are listening to this might identify with? Let me think there. Let's think about the a very classic example would be Apple versus Samsung. So if you look at an Apple product versus a Samsung product and how they present themselves to um, the world as a brand and who the person is that purchases those products, um, there's definitely like very clear delineations, at least from the marketing standpoint. If you're purchasing an Apple product, you're more inclined to design, you're more inclined to creative freedom, um, you're a little bit more rebellious, you're a little bit more freeform, uh, Silicon Valley type, like uh, open creative versus a Samsung product, which is a little bit more direct, aggressive. You might have a little bit more technical knowledge. It's very funny because you'll see a lot of like basketball references that's related to like Android products, but that's that's essentially the, the delineation. The, the Samsung products are a little bit more rigid and structured and um, direct and aggressive. And even if in their like design, it's a little bit darker versus the Apple products, which are lighter, more open, airy, and creative leaning. Fantastic. I think that's definitely one that a lot of us know, especially as I sit here talking to you mm -hmm. through an Apple MacBook. Um, yes. And so I can relate to that. And I hope our listeners can as well. So you wrote this thesis and we'll dive back a little bit into your undergrad experience later in our conversation. But I want to move forward. So mm -hmm. you graduate and um, can you share a little bit about your first couple of roles outside sure. of uh, graduating before you took the plunge into your own startup? Sure. So straight out of school and I'll, I'll go actually a little bit back into my senior year. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And when you're in the business school and you have no idea what you want to do, everyone tells you to be a consultant. Um, so I went the whole consulting route of, let me study for my case studies. Let me, you know, put together all of this like rigorous forming around, okay, this is how I need to interview. This is how I need to actually like present, um, my ideas. This is how I make a pitch deck, um, as it relates to any type of like business analysis work. Um, and my first job was at IBM and I was placed in essentially what was an internal creative agency at IBM in their, in their consulting arm. So we would have companies come to us and pitch to us like, okay, this, this is the issue around what's happening with my business, whether it's around the brand or whether around it, it was around like business operations. And it was our job to essentially do like very design intensive work and essentially pitch them a new way of like doing business or solving their problems. So um, I was actually chosen for that program because there's only about like 30 or 40 of us um, because of my thesis research. Um, so I was placed in the user experience design role um, where it was my job to kind of get an understanding of how people interact with digital products and why um, they made the choices that they did when using it. So making sure that when for example, if you have an app, like if you need to place an order, what is the natural behavior around placing an order? Does it make sense to them? What's a way to make it easier? It's very niche and granular, but tied back to what my my specialty was through my, my thesis and the research I did with marketing and like consumer behavior. I was at IBM for about a year. Um, I was working on a lot of kind of like operational and like telecom uh telecom company projects, which wasn't my favorite. Um, I wanted to get into something that was a little bit more related to one of my other passions, which was finance, since I said I previously wanted to be a finance major. So I left IBM, went to a smaller consulting firm um, called Capco, and 
they specialize in financial consulting. So their clients are like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, um, JP Morgan. So I thought it would be a great way to kind of combine my two interests. Um, There I specialized even more. So rather than the overall prospect of user experience design, where you're actually like building the apps, I was just in user experience research. So I would be conducting user interviews, getting an understanding of what people's pain points are, what their problems are, writing usability reports on products that were already developed and giving designers and developers directions of how they could better improve the product to make sure that it's more usable for the end user um, based on how they are already interacting and what other things they need to consider building out in terms of functionalities and user stories. So I was there for about two years. And while I was at the job is when I started Redo. Um, But I was really only in corporate life for about three years before I took the plunge into my own business. So you're at these roles and, you know, you decide to take the plunge. How do you still use the skills that you developed in those corporate settings in, you know, I think you could probably use a startup or maybe even the term boutique as you're growing to describe your business. How do you leverage those learnings in your current role? Yeah, I would even say like micro business. And when people are like startup, blah, blah, I was just like, we're like, super tiny, super, super tiny. Um, But there's very basic business skills that I think you learn from consulting and any entry level job that is transferable to whether it's a side project or a new job or, um, or an elevation in your own role. And those are basically running a meeting, organizing and running a meeting, clearly being able to articulate an idea um, in a way that people are able to resonate with and build upon Um, managing a schedule, (laughs) managing your own schedule, because uh, when you're running your own company, your day starts whenever, and it also ends whenever. Um, And then some more soft skills around just being able to communicate clearly. Um, Something that I learned that was really helpful through consulting is just the the art of cold emailing and being able to receive no as an answer. Um, there's a lot of times that I've had to just reach out to people and this comes back to, to networking. I think Penn State kind of uh, supports this very much so because there's always the encouragement. It's like, if you know someone went to Penn State, if you reach out to them, they will respond to you. So I've kind of taken that same energy with redo and I'm like okay if someone has a similar interest to me or they have done something that I want to do if I just approach it in a way where I'm very clear of what I I'm asking for very clear on the advice that I'm looking for and I articulate that to them and show that I'm not going to waste their time they will reply to me so I cold email all of the time like stores saying hi do you want to stock our product or people in business that I would love to have as quote-unquote mentors or at least like advisors saying like hey I'm working on this thing like can we chat for 15 minutes about x y and z I read about you doing this thing and I want to know like how you did and what your approach was and that has been unbelievably helpful Um, and that's something that I learned from consulting because there's sometimes where you're just sitting on the bench and you need to ask someone to give you work so you don't get fired and then they give you work and then that's it. So you talked about your schedule and time management that's often a you know a common refrain for all college students um, but particularly for Schreier scholars who want to come in and you know they're taking 18 credits 21 credits they're leading organizations on campus they're doing research they're studying abroad when that is permissible um, and you know that's a hard skill to develop it sounds easy but it's really hard so are there any specific strategies that you found have worked for you that perhaps a student could see if that works for them Yeah, it's something you're absolutely right, Sean, it's wildly hard. And sometimes I wish I was actually in a school setting, because it's so nice to just have, in my opinion, have those times blocked off specifically for class. You're like, okay, I have class time from, you know, 8am to 12pm. And then I can exercise for a little bit. And then I can rest and then I can work. That's so, for me, works so well. So I still try to implement those, um, those boundaries around my week. So there will be days where I cannot take any external meetings. And I'm like, we can't talk on these days because I need undisturbed work 
for eight hours just so my brain can kind of flow in and out of flow state um, and then designate time blocks during the week where I can actually take like internal meetings and external meetings. Of course, I'm always accessible via via Slack. Um, but something that has really helped me that I've just started implementing in the last three months is at the beginning of the week is just setting out what your goals are for the end of the week and being like, okay, looking at them every day, like I need to like mine are this week. It's like, I need to write four email campaigns and I need to cold email like six new stores. So I'm like, every day I look at that and say, where am I on the progress of writing these campaigns? Have I reached out to these stores? Who do I need to talk to on my team? And then at the end of the week, just looking back and I'm like, okay, crossed all of these things off of my list um, to make sure that they're done. And then at the beginning of the month, I make like an entire month's worth of goals. And then at the end of the month, I look back at how uh, those goals were achieved and it's just built up from like the week. So it sounds very, you know, like stepping stone. It's like, have your monthly goals, have your quarterly goals, have your yearly goals and breaking it down to the week and then to the day. Um, it kind of works like that, but it doesn't always work like that. So I give this advice with like a grain of salt where something might happen and you're not able to hit your goals and that's okay. As long as you're tracking what you're doing is, is the intention and will help you move things along and have a clear vision of why you're working on the things that you're working on. That makes sense. You know, uh, I think I've used the expression, as long as the car isn't forward, you know, you, maybe you're only moving a few miles an hour, but you're not in neutral, you're not in park, you're, you're moving forward. So I think right. that's that is sage advice for, for students and for um, other folks that are listening. Now, a moment ago, you mentioned that part of your cold calling or cold emailing um, that you undertake is making connections and specifically looking for mentors. Mm -hmm. How do you approach that specifically? And whether now in your role or as a student, as a scholar, how did you approach mm -hmm. that? And what tips would you have for a scholar trying to find a mentor mm -hmm. or more accurately mentors? mentors yes and i know we've discussed that this a lot sean around like the concept of what is the word mentor and what does a mentor actually do for a student or for anyone um so i think it's evolved for me from when i was a student versus now when i'm a little bit more seasoned in my professional career and i've even had to go through the the mental growth of being like okay I'm, I'm no longer just trying to be like a, a vessel of like, I don't know anything. I still try to come with that level of, of open-mindedness. But um, I found now, like as, as I'm more of a professional, that when I speak to my quote-unquote mentors, they're like, listen, you don't know, like, I don't know that much more than you. We're, we can just be here to like collaborate and like bounce ideas back and forth versus when I was a student where I was like, please tell me all of the answers. So by... My advice is when you're, when you're looking for a mentor or you're looking for someone to give you advice, um, do a lot of research on that individual first of why you even want to speak with them. What is it about their career? What is it about their journey? What is it about their story that intrigues you and that you want to learn more about? So when you reach out to them, you have a very specific question that you want to ask and discuss. Don't go to a mentor or someone that you want to be your mentor and be like, hey, will you mentor me? Because the next question they're going to ask is on what and for what? Because that's a that's a very big ask to just be like, here, I am a formless shape of clay. Please mold me into what you are because uh, hopefully a good mentor will be like, you don't want to be what I am because you are what you are, but I can share my experiences with you so you can be the best version of you um, by learning from what I was able to achieve. So that's my biggest piece of advice. Don't go just asking for a mentor. Ask for specific, specific advice based on what their experiences are and how that then ties back to what, um, what you're looking to do with your life. I've done this many times um, and it's, it's, the best way to kind of form a relationship and then realize that there are some mentors that will stick and you talk to them every single week. And there's some that you might only talk to every couple of months, which is also okay. Um, Cause it's just a matter of getting the perspectives and insights from people that 
um, are doing the things that you want to do. Did that answer your question? I want to make sure that that was yeah, <laughs> clear. Yeah, that's okay. great. And I think if they're, you know, if you're listening to this and you want to follow up with Asia afterwards, definitely take her advice when you're reaching out and we'll cover how to connect with her at the end of our conversation. But yes, <laughs> I was like, please ask me. Please. I, there's too many times where people have reached out and be like, how do I be successful like you? And that'll be on a day where I don't feel successful. And I'm like, you just have to wake up every day and do your tasks and drink water and go to sleep. That's the advice I'm going to give you. And you're going to be very upset because you're like, that's not helpful. I want to know how you did, you know, how did you win a Glossier grant or how did you get into Vogue? I'm like, if you ask me those specific questions, we can talk about that, but not how to be successful or how to be like you. Yeah. And hydration and sleep are definitely two key components for success in any industry, not just in marketing, not just in the startup entrepreneurial space. But if you do research Asia and, you know, you Google um, some of the things that will come up are some successes that you've had. Like you just referenced, you won a Glossier grant. You were featured in Vogue. You were featured in The New York Times and you received a shout out from Sheryl Sandberg. Um, I mm-hmm. believe, right, on a Facebook quarterly earnings call. Is that correct? Um, how how do you handle that at such a young age, kind of this glow and, and I don't know if I want to use the word fame, but sudden attention that, you know, you, you said your firm is a micro business, but you've gotten the attention that a lot larger brands get. How do you handle that? How do I personally handle that or how does the business handle it? Uh, both. The business handles it by having a fulfillment center that handles all of the orders so I don't have to pack anything anymore. So the business is handling it just fine, thank goodness. (laughs) From my perspective of how I handle it, we look at each of those opportunities where people are kind enough to share our story or feel motivated to share our story as like indirect ways of them saying, you're going to make it and you're doing the right thing. So it's just a reinforcement of encouragement of what we're already doing. Um, as a, a, what I've heard from other founders and what I've also experienced is that it's very lonely to be working on something that is your own um, because you're kind of in this micro vacuum of like, okay, am I doing the right thing? Do people like what I'm doing? Is it even useful? Like, is this worth my time? Because it is a lot of hard work. And most of the time it's, it's very quiet and just you and yourself and your thoughts. So every time we get any type of like external recognition, it's just like, oh, look, like people are resonating and people do like it. And we should just keep doing what we're doing. And we should trust our gut. Um, With that being said, when more people talk about you, a lot of people, everyone has an opinion. So people will be like, oh, you should do this. Like, I can't tell you how many times people have said, we need to come out with a perfume or we need to come out with a soap dish um, just because of the things that we have. And it's 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 super encouraging, but you get to a point also where you're like, okay, um, I know what I needed to do to be able to get to this point And I can still trust my gut of what I need to do to get us to the next point. Um, but just fostering that positive energy is how we handle it. And, you know, it's sometimes people don't talk and that's fine also. And then when Cheryl wants to say something nice, we're just like, thank you, Cheryl. We write thank you cards all of the time. Um, But yeah, that's how we handle it. We just take it as a, as a verbal pat on the back. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. You mentioned thank you cards because that is a bit of a lost art. So uh, editorial interjection here. Make sure you write thank you cards as often as possible. Sometimes email is the only way you can get a hold of somebody. But if you can send a physical thank you card and have the time and and the stamps to do so, highly recommend. I start planning our holiday cards. So actually all year. This is something I learned from Samil. And this is also something I learned from um, one of my favorite books, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Um, Cards are unbelievably impactful. I do my own personal thank you cards, and then I do any business relationship that we had with Redo throughout the entire year. I save everyone's addresses um, in this massive Excel spreadsheet, and I track it by year. So there's like a 2019 one, a 2021, and then there's a 2021 one, and I start looking at it in November, order all of our stationery write in all of them. It's like its own project at the end of the year that I have to manage. (laughs) And then like buy so many stamps ahead of time. 
Um, I even bought like a label maker for each of like the, the mailing labels. And I send like two to 300 like holiday cards at the end of the year, just saying, thank you for being a part of Reedy's success this year. Like we couldn't have done it without you because you might be, or you meaning I, or if you, whoever is working on their project, like you might be the one putting in the hours every day. But the reason that your business or your project is successful is again, because of those that believe in it. So you want to properly thank them for just spending the time and energy to support you because they don't have to. Yeah. And, and, you know, you talked uh, about honoring the success and that it's a team effort and you, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, you have team members, you have vendors and partners and mentors. Mm -hmm. And I know we go back a little bit. And so I would definitely describe you as a bit of a realist. Um, And so I have to know that you made a very calculated decision when you took the leap to go from Mm -hmm. side hustle to a full-time venture with redo. Mm -hmm. But I have to imagine that there was some unexpected challenges that even, you know, the most planning, calculating person may not have anticipated. So could you walk us through a couple of those? Sure, for sure. And Sean, that's so funny that you say I'm a realist because I still deathfully identify as like an idealist um, with like a realist twist. I don't think anything is out of reach if you if you speak it into existence. Like I was like, we're going to win the Glossier Grand. And people were like, okay, 10,000 people applied. I was like, we're going to win, which in my mind was like a real reality. And then we did win. Um, but it took a lot of work to get there. Some things that happened that um i didn't didn't consider let me think um this year so like i said i'm very strong on the sales and marketing side and in the area where i was still in the process of learning um proactively was around like the finance like small business finance is very different than you know like corporate finance or like the finance that you're looking at when you're like an investment banker because you're looking at companies with like hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes billions of dollars that also have like all of this debt to be able to function and grow their business very different from you know a small team of one full-time person and a whole bunch of contractors so looking at like a balance sheet and looking at like a profit and loss statement and being like okay am i profitable like what do we need to plan for demand next year like all of my business acumen from Smeal was super, super helpful, just partially irrelevant when it comes to like small business. Cause I can't demand plan. I don't have like historic data on like what we've been able to uh, like sell through because last year was crazy for us. And then this year um, there's like supply chain shortages and whatnot. So it's just balancing like the price of glass has gone up 60%. What does that mean for our cost of goods sold? And then what does that mean when we have to hand things over to, you know, pricing over to, to our customers? So to be clear and honest, um, there's been a plethora of things that have gone terribly right and terribly wrong. Um, And the only way that we've really been able to address them is just acknowledging that it is something that has happened and looking at what our next best steps are, which I guess kind of plays into what you're saying about me being a realist. It's like, we can't expect everything to go right. And that's something we have to learn um, that a business does not run as smoothly as one talks about a business running. So just dealing with problems head on and addressing what needs to be addressed on that day and being firm in our decisions, but also forgiving enough in ourselves if we do make a mistake, um, because mistakes do happen and just pivoting from there if necessary. I hope that answered your question. No, that's a, a great answer. And uh, if you end up following, um, you know, connecting with Asia on Instagram, one of the things you'll see is um, Asia, actually, you make all of the soaps that, that you create, mm-hmm. you actually have a lab in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have kind of the odds and ends that you pack up or the the misfits, I think you call them, mm-hmm. which I think is a great example of turning the lemon, lemons into lemonade in that sense. Um, that actually brings up something I wanted to chat about real quick before we kind of pivot is you were in New York and then you mm-hmm. suddenly are in Philly. How yes. did that change come about? Sure. Um, and this is so fun because I get to reference one of my, my favorite podcast episodes. It's from Second Life. Um, this woman 
named Aurora James, who started this beautiful company called Brothers Bellies, which is a shoe brand, um, and Beyonce has worn it. But um, all of that information is relevant. I was in New York. I was working my corporate job, making close to six figures, living in my studio apartment in Brooklyn um, in 2020. Then the pandemic hit. I'm an only child. My family freaked out. Um, They were like, please come home because I was living on like one of the busiest streets in Brooklyn and everyone was freaking out. Didn't know if it was trans, like if the coronavirus was transmissible on like surfaces, grocery stores were stocked out, everything was pandemonium. So they're like, please come back to Pennsylvania, to the suburbs, stay in your childhood room, like, and you can go back to New York when all of this is handled at the end of summer. We all know that the coronavirus was not handled by the end of summer. I was playing, paying some absorbent amount of rent just to have my things fester and sit in my New York apartment. So, and this is also when, um, Redo was picking up throughout the summer, like in June is when we really started hitting um, like significant growth. And by August, I was like, there's no way I can continue making this soap when I'm in New York because I needed the help of my my family and my friends that were around me here. So I decided to break my lease last October and like officially move home. Still had my full-time job at that point. Um, And then was just kind of managing that working from like eight to six in my full-time job and then six to 11 with redo um very unhealthy very bad very much burning (laughs) the stick on both ends um and then two things two or three things happened actually at the end of last year where um we got a purchase order from the reformation they wanted to do a third-party buy to have as their holiday season product on their website uh we won the glossier grant and then we were reached out to buy the New York Times to be in the holiday gift guide. And I was like, all of those things show me that I am going to burn to a crisp during Q4 if I don't quit my full-time job. So I quit my full-time job um, because I had the flexibility of being at home with my parents, which I still am here. Uh, Something that I don't think a lot of founders talk about is like the sacrifices that they have to make in order to make their business work. You just see all of like the beautiful glamorous side, like a lot of money, a lot of press. Um, And I try to keep the realist side um, alive so people don't have this unrealistic expectation on themselves and put all this pressure on themselves um, to, to do something that they don't technically need to do. But I do live at home with my family still. They don't make me pay rent, bless them. Um, so I can really just focus my energy on redo and reinvest the money back into the business because that's what I want the business to thrive on and have its success around. And then you know, later on, I'll be able to do all of the fun things. That's fantastic. And I I appreciate that, you know, nobody operates in a vacuum, right? So you've got this community, you've got your family supporting you, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, And, you know, no business is successful without, as you mentioned earlier, a simple face value, but very difficult skill, just like time management of running a meeting. And I know you had plenty of experience uh, firsthand learning how to do that. And this is something that, you know, if you're listening, that you can take to your club or your business or your side hustle or your startup um, that Asia, you've had serving as the most recent president of the Scholar Alumni Society, which is the constituent group for the Schreier Honors College and the University Scholars Program under the Penn State Alumni Association. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your other career, which is your volunteer career and uh, some of the successes that you had and um, reflect on your on your tenure a little bit. Sure. Yes. So I applied to be a part of the board pretty much straight out of school. So back in 2018, I felt very indebted to the college because there was just so much, so many opportunities and so many doors were opened and the staff was just unfathomably supportive and just gracious with their time and efforts to help me be successful. So when I left, I felt like I was given a lot, but wasn't able to reciprocate what I was given. So I looked to the board as a means of like, okay, I can give back my time because right now I don't have like the the financial means to be able to give back in a scholarship in a meaningful way. Um, so the, the thing that I have is my time. So that was back in 2018. I was a general, um, just a general board member. That's when Aaron and Dave and Todd was president at the time. Um, and I 
really just spent the first, I think, couple of months um, actually operating kind of from like a place of fear because it was like only a few months beforehand where I was like, all of these people were people I saw at Connect or that I would see at these like recruiting events. And they just seem like these big, scary adults that are so knowledgeable. And then I was sitting next to them as their peer um, and also sitting next to them as someone with answers because we were all trying to get young alumni involved at the point, at that point. And I was the youngest alum and it was like, how do we speak to your demographics? So that's essentially where I became. Um, where I was able to find my voice and able to find like where I was able to actually deliver value, which changed how my relationship was with the other board members. And again, operating from a place of fear and kind of imposter syndrome where I was like, oh, I'm young and I don't want to seem like I don't know anything. I just put in so much work that everyone was like, wow, Asia, thank you so much for contributing all of this time and energy. And I was like, I just don't want to seem like I'm not actually contributing. Um, so I, I just reflecting on that is still very funny for me. Um, and then I was after Aaron Talbert, um, was set to leave the board. She pretty much set me up to be the uh, scholar, um, scholar alumni engagement committee chair. And then I led that and had the experience of like, okay, now I'm not just like someone that's doing the work. Now I'm like leading the meetings and help facilitating discussion and kind of empowering people to follow what they wanted to be able to do um, through their, through their experience on the board. Um, So doing that for a year, working with AIP and kind of expanding that and working with the other committee chairs. Then Todd's term was coming up and he was like, Asia, you've put in all of this work. Like, I think you'd be great as president because you have a very clear view of how to kind of expand uh, what we've built here. So still operating from a place of mild imposter syndrome, a little less. Uh, I think this is only maybe like two years in. Um, I was like, you know what, maybe I can do this. And I think that's when I had already switched my other job. So I'm still working a consulting career. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to be president of the board. And we're going to see how that works out. Um, and it was a great experience. I'm, I'm hesitating now because I'm just trying to remember what those early months were like. Um, because I was like, okay, how has this board historically worked? And where are there, where is there room for improvement? And what are my personal strengths that I'm actually able to bring here to help those things come to fruition? And what that really um, landed on was I'm, I'm great at bringing people together. I'm great at empowering people and giving them a voice in the work that they do. Um, all of that kind of falling under the umbrella of, of networking. And something that's very important to me is just being the voice for people um, that can't be present in a room. So specifically around DE&I efforts um, and underrepresented minorities uh, and their representation at Schreier since um, now I was in a position of very visible power working with the staff. Um, I was very young. I think at that time I was 24 when I uh, was elected to be president. I was only a couple of years out of school. So um, that responsibility I saw as something very, very important and took that very seriously. So making sure that that was a part of the strategy from from the get-go. But my leadership style is very, very collaborative. Um, so I wanted everyone in the board, since again, it's, it's time and volunteering time rather than money, um, you want to make sure that the individuals that are involved feel like they are actually contributing. So my reflections on the board is that um, it's it was a great learning experience and very rewarding in terms of being able to see people do work that they're passionate about and see the college be so receptive to working collaboratively with their alumni base to grow in areas where they know they need to experience growth um, and take criticism and, and constructive feedback on what can be done better in a more collaborative way with the existing alumni group. And I, I just want to say thank you, Asia. So in my role, I work with the Alumni Society and the board. Um, and Asia and I worked very closely together first, as she mentioned, as a committee chair after she succeeded Aaron Talbert. Um, and then um, as president after she succeeded Todd Bacastow. And also you mentioned, uh, I want to give a shout out to David Horowitz, who helped uh, inspire Connect, which is our annual alumni and student career networking day that we typically host at the end of March. 
Um, so depending on when you're listening to this, it may be coming up. It may have just happened, but um, certainly want to give a shameless plug for that event. But I want to say thank you, Asia, for all your work. Um, I think you took the great things that Todd and David and Aaron had been doing in their predecessors and took it to a new level, uh, including the formation of a committee focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the college and how we engage alumni in that way. Um, and our partnership with um, the assistant dean for equity and inclusion, Dr. Lynette Yarger, um, bringing her into the fold with the board. So just want to say thank you for that. Um, and I know we're coming up kind of on the end of our conversation. And, just, you know, I think you talked about your leadership style. And I think that's something students should certainly look into and try to define. But I don't think we have time for to dive in today. But I do want to ask if you have a final piece of advice uh, for students or alumni that are listening to this that um, you think is really important for a scholar to succeed in their classes, in their leadership, in their career? Yes, 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 yes. This is something that I try to practice every day. Um, I kind of switch between mantras here and there, but this is the one that um, has been really relevant to the work I've been doing how I interact with my team. And also, as I mentioned before, um, addressing some of those like fears and insecurities as being um, a young black woman in a, in a predominantly um, male dominated world and kind of startups are very white and startups are very venture backed. There's a lot of opportunity to, to feel small um, and also, I remember as a student feeling like I needed to overinflate the work that I've done or overstate what I am and just kind of like puff out my chest um, and and be more than than I sometimes felt. So something that I've been living by and that I've been telling people um, to kind of practice is the concept of being clear is is an act of kindness both to yourself and to others being clear on what you're able to deliver um what knowledge you know like what you're actually able to commit to rather than over committing yourself and burning out or lying about something you don't know um and then trying to like scramble and make it work and delivering something that actually isn't good um when you're clear and you are respectful and very um, honest about the the work that you're doing and have integrity with the work that you're doing. People receive that very well and are more willing to work with you. Um, and the type of people that you want to work with will be more willing to work with you. The people that don't, <laughs> the people that you don't want to work with will be self-selecting out if you are clear because they're the ones that will take advantage of you or like, you know, degrade your work or not actually give you constructive feedback, which I 100% learn the hard way um, by overextending myself and not being being clear on my intentions or clear of what I wanted. So that's my one piece of advice. Clear is kind, practice clarity, practice intention, um, be clear with your boundaries, be clear on what you're able to deliver and hold that same level of expectations for others. And the last piece is something that Schreier instills all the time, but want to reinforce is knowledge is power. Always, always, always always be in the process of learning um, because you are never done learning. So that's all. Absolutely fantastic um, advice for anybody, you know, who you're listening. Um, so appreciate that. Uh, just to wrap up with some fun, quick questions. Are there any faults in addition to the ones you've already mentioned that you would like to give a quick shout out to from your scholar days or um, from your time as the SASB president? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm at the, the Grammys now or whatever, like the Oscars. <laughs> Don't forget to thank the Academy. Yeah, I know. I'm like, well, one, thank you to Schreier overall for one, putting this together um, and just having this opportunity to allow alumni speak. I think this is a, a great way to people to be able to share their stories. And again, practice clarity and kindness through clarity. Um, shout out to Melissa Doberstein, the director of PLA and just 
keeping that program together because I know it, it's crazy. Shout out to my co-founder, Alejandro Cuevas, who is um, from the class of 2018. I'm like, there's so many people. Shout out to Dean Brady, who was my original dean. I don't even know if he's going to if he's gonna hear this, but um, he was the dean of the Honors College while I was there. And he dealt with a lot of my, uh, my personality, we'll call it, um, while I was there. <laughs> Um, shout out to Natalie Keller, who's the, who's my successor for the, um, for the SESB as president. She's doing a phenomenal job. Um, she was my VP while I was president. She's, she's already killing the game. So I'm very proud of her. Also, Dean Johnson. Sorry. Always. <laughs> I was like, I knew I was going to get like, I'm, I'm so glad, Sean, you're not playing like the exit music, but Dean Johnson, um, because she was the Dean while I was president and she was so receptive and the entire staff was just so receptive to working collaboratively with the, with the board and without her actually being receptive and engaging us in conversation, we couldn't have gotten done half the things that we got done, like expanding the board um, and focusing on DE&I efforts. So big shout out to Dean Johnson. Shout out to literally anyone who's listening to this. You're doing a great job. You're trying to better yourself. I'm proud of you. I'm sure Sean's proud of you. I'm sure all of your professors are proud of you. Um, and you should also be proud of yourself because you're you're taking the time to improve yourself. You're taking the time to get out of your comfort zone and just explore what's available to you. So great job. Shout out to you. Keep doing what you're doing. Feel free to reach out to me. I don't know when you're listening to this. I might be 30 by the time you're listening to it, but I'm, I'm here for you and I'm rooting you on. Um, and I want to see you succeed too. So good job. Perfect. Uh, so if they do want to connect with you, what are the best platforms that they can hit you up on? Um, the way people can reach out to me is through LinkedIn. Um, as everyone says, I'm Asia Grant. There's a whole bunch of Asia Grants, but I'm the one that has Redo as as their job title. Um, you can also just send me an email, which is a hit or miss sometimes because I have like 12 email inboxes. You can reach out to me on Instagram. Um, we'll see how that plays out if anyone actually does that. But on Instagram, I am Shmeja which is my colloquial name in turn, which is S-H-M-A-S-I-A. Or you can just reach out to me on Redo NYC. I still am on the social media platform there. Um, but I, I warn if you're reaching out on any of the casual networks that uh, you have to bring your A game in terms of networking. I will, I will be a little bit more skeptical of why you're reaching out to me there. So um, I'll, I'll open that as a challenge. Um, that's my chaotic, <laughs> my chaotic side from, the, from running a business. But um, you're going to find me anyway. So if you want to reach out there, you can you can reach out there as well. Fantastic. And I'd love to close with um, a really fun question. If you were a flavor of Berkey Creamery ice cream, which would you be? And as a scholar, most importantly, why that flavor? Okay. Oh, my gosh. Always at the PLA dinners, they would have alumni swirl. Sean, is that the one with, is it like mint chip and blueberries or something? What's in it? Uh, alumni swirl. I, I apologize to my colleagues at the at the Berkey Creamery if I don't get this exactly correct. But uh, I think in layman's terms, it is vanilla ice cream with chocolate chunks or chocolate chips and a blueberry type of swirl, which if you've never had it, highly recommend trying it. Sounds like it shouldn't work, but it is a beautiful collaboration of flavors. And that is why I am that. <laughs> <laughs> you just gave my why. I'm looking at it now, of course, searching on my phone. Vanilla ice cream, Swiss mocha chip. See, not even chocolate. That is, that's the unexpected nice part. And then blueberry swirl. Um, yes, I like it because it sounds like it shouldn't work. It's a little bit chaotic, but there's also some some forms of normalcy through the vanilla. The mocha chip is definitely a, a form of caffeine, which is what I need to be able to power my life. Um, <laughs> and, then, um, and then the blueberry swirl, again, I think is that chaotic agent where it shouldn't work, but you know, you tried you tried something crazy and it did work, which is essentially the the structure of my entire life let's just try something crazy and somehow it it worked and now we're living this this beautiful dream so alumni swirl i stick by it perfect that's always a, a great choice asia thank you for joining me today you heard how to connect with her if you want to follow up ask any specific questions perhaps even approach her about being your mentor or you know remember come with a specific 
asked a specific problem, as Asia shared. Um, so thank you for joining me today, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you so much, Sean, and thank you to everyone who's listening. Have a great day. Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. Please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Stoller alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at stolleralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are... <laughs>